This podcast is not legal advice and should not be relied upon as such. You should always obtain legal advice about your specific circumstances. Hello and welcome to Smarter Lawcast with Hall & Wilcox. My name is Martin Ross and today I'm joined by my colleague and defamation expert, Hamish McNair. In the first episode of You Can't Say That, our podcast about defamation law. Defamation is a really interesting topic. There's always plenty of interesting high profile matters um, occurring. And today we're going to look at defamation from the perspective of a plaintiff or a claimant. Hamish, let's start with the obvious question, who can be defamed? Martin, and thanks for joining me on this great podcast talking about defamation, which is something which is very close to my heart and I love talking about. Um, one writer I'll um, just start with before I get into the, the nitty gritty of this is that it's a very technical area of law and my answers might seem a little bit succinct and there's a lot more to it, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hit the high notes. So I'll just get that on the record at the start. Um, in terms of who can be defamed, the number one um, plaintiff would be an individual. So that's sort of what we understand to be um, the usual position from defamation law. What people also don't or might not understand is that there are excluded corporations who can also claim for defamation. So when we're talking about excluded corporations, we're talking about corporated entities that have less than 10 employees, or um, that's full-time or part-time equivalent of 10 employees, or um, that have been incorporated for a not-for-profit purpose. So that really expands things out quite a fair bit. What's an example of a corporation um, incorporated for a not-for-profit purpose? One of the big ones we've seen is actually schools and hospitals. So independent schools um, are usually incorporated for a not-for-profit purpose and hospitals are a big one. Um, Melton Medical Institutions, research organisations. Um, we've also got charities uh, we've acted for in a defamation context. So these are organisations which are we would consider quite large in terms of turnover, but are also excluded for the purposes of making defamation claims in their own right. Great. Um, before we talk more about the detail of defamation law. How did you come to get interested in this area? What really interests me from a, a legal perspective about defamation is that um, it's the facts. It's the facts of the situation which really lend themselves to an interesting area of law. And then there's a technicality over the top of that in relation to defamation. Um, there's also the concept of helping people here. So um, there are a lot of circumstances where people have set out to harm other people or to hurt other people or to um, take down competitors and, and in those kinds of contexts. And in this particular area of law, it really does give you a, a degree of um, satisfaction to help people in that area. Thanks, Hamish. Um, how then do defamation issues usually arise? As a very broad context um, for, for defamation issues to arise. I mean, the real, at the crux of defamation is reputation and reputation can um, extend or um, bleed over from a professional life into a personal life. So um, there is a, a significantly broad spectrum of, of areas where defamation issues can arise. It can be as much a, a barbecue as it can be something said or written down in the corporate context. And I imagine social media has had a part to play in defamation over the last few years. It has had a massive impact on defamation in the last few years. I think um, the the first defamation, um, digital defamation case involving social media was in 2013. And since then, there's really been an explosion of cases involving um, 
defamation by social media in particular. And I think really where that comes from is the fact that we're really communicating more online as people and as, as corporate and, and in our corporate and personal lives. And so um, if we're communicating online, then we're defaming online. And that's really why there's been an emergence of that. I think there's also the fact that on social media, it's much easier to tweet or to post or to reshare or to blog about someone, um, particularly when you think that you're doing so anonymously. Um, so I think all of those circumstances really contribute to, to social media in particular, but digital defamation being a, a significant area of um, a source of defamatory publications. And what does a claimant have to establish? What are the elements of defamation? There are four elements of defamation um, in most Australian states and territories, and we'll be getting to that in a subsequent episode um, because the law is a little bit different in each state and territory. But the usual four are publication, identification, defamatory meaning, and serious harm. What do you mean by publication? So publication is incredibly broad. Uh, when we talk about publication in a defamation context, we're not just talking about something written down or a video. We can be talking about um, any kind of communication from one person to another. So it can be things said, it can be things written, it can be images, um, it can be um, verbal gestures. You can defame someone in sign language. Um, it, it is a, an incredibly broad concept. So that's, that's where the defamation on social media comes through with posts and comments made on Insta and, and Facebook. Yeah, we're actually seeing a lot more defamation by TikTok, um, which is interesting because people wouldn't associate TikTok as being a defamation, uh, a source, of, a platform where people would defame each other. But people putting up images um, of um, their friends in compromising positions with overlaying of text and things like that, and that gets shared very rapidly. So, um, yeah, we, we think about perhaps defamation as being something which is traditionally a newspaper thing, but really where we are in 2022, it's, it's more of a, a broader concept. And the second element's identification. Um, yeah. Does that so, mean identifying the subject matter of, of the defamatory comment? That's right. So in order to defame someone or um, an excluded corporation, you need to identify them. So you can either do that directly or you can do that indirectly through um, uh, inferences or, or facts which are known to a particular set of circumstances. A good example of that is the recent Christian Porter case where there was that concerned an article written on the ABC uh, the ABC News website, and that never actually named Christian Porter. But it is still the allegation made by his legal team was that it defamed him because it essentially laid out the breadcrumbs for people to understand that that was talking about Christian Porter and therefore it was identifying him for the purposes of the defamation claim. And I imagine it can cut both ways as well. You could identify someone in an article, but wrongly um, identify that person as, as being the, the subject of... Um, a complaint yeah, you, or an issue you can particularly when people try and avoid defamation claims by being vague they'll talk about they'll try and be vague to avoid the claim but that actually casts the net wider such that other people will put their hands up and think that you were talking about them um, so that is an issue yeah and the third element was defamation itself so what's meant by that what we're talking about in that context is defamatory meaning rather than words so it's not the specific words that are used it's what the defamatory publication means and this is um, a very highly litigated area of law because what the actual meaning is goes to um, the various defenses that can be raised and um, the uh, harm which results to the particular person so um, the an example we usually give is to say that you can either say that hamish is a thief or you can say after something was stolen hamish went into hiding 
both of those statements have the same defamatory imputation, which is that I'm dishonest or that I've engaged in theft. Um, one says it specifically and the other says it um, in more indirect words. What do you mean by imputation, Hamish? Imputation is really just a, a, a complex legal word for meaning. So imputation, um, you can have a number of imputations arising from the one publication and each imputation is a separate meaning or a separate um, uh, instance of defamatory meaning which is conveyed by publication and you can have more than one so for example in that example I was giving before about myself saying Hamish is a thief there would be an imputation that I am dishonest and there would also be an imputation that I stole a particular thing at a particular time they, they are different imputations they're different meanings and they you both you, you engage with them um, in parallel in the context of a defamation claim. The other element of defamation is serious harm um, what's meant by that and, and what's changed recently? Well, serious harm is a very new element of the cause of action for defamation. It hasn't been brought into um, force in all states and territories, and we'll be talking about that in, um, in a subsequent episode. But um, I would love to tell you what that means, Martin. <laughs> the truth of the matter is I don't know. Um, and no one really does, because um, where it's been legislated in the states and territories in which it has, there hasn't been any explanation about what it means. So it's really up for the courts to decide what that means. Um, it is a concept which has been borrowed or copy pasted, I would say, from um, the law of the United Kingdom. So we do get a little bit of guidance from them about what they think it means, but there haven't been any Australian courts yet really get into the nitty gritty and, and um, make a ruling on what that means. But in, in the corporate context, at least, we know in the corporate context that it means financial harm. In the personal context, it's more, it's more difficult. And that, I assume the rationale for that change of law is to um, reduce the number of, of trivial claims. Yes, it is. And um, what we used to have is we used to actually have a defense of triviality where if someone, um, if there was, because defamation, when we're looking at defamatory publications, it can be from one person to another person. So technically that is publication. It's identified, it identifies the person, it's defamatory. It ticks all of those boxes, but does it really hurt the, hurt the reputation of that particular person? Well, probably not. So what we used to do is we used to say, we'll let you through the gate by establishing a cause of action for defamation. And then we'll raise a defense of triviality. What they're doing is they're bringing that forward and saying, um, you don't even have a cause of action for defamation unless you can prove serious harm. So it is really to weed out those um, uh, those trivial cases, yeah. Hamish, what commonly motivates a person to or a corporation to bring a claim for defamation? In our experience, and I think it's a broader um, experience as well based on the academic research, I think there are really three uh, reasons why people normally agitate defamation claims. The first one is damages. Um, which I think is quite obvious. People want to be compensated for harm to the reputation. The second one is to shut down a conversation. So there might be a lot of media criticism about them and they want to sort of get on the front foot and try and shut that down. And the third is vindication. So uh, if someone has had something false and defamatory said about them, they want to have a court um, rule on that and find conclusively that that was false. So that if someone comes up to them years down the track, they can say, you know, that's all been dealt with. There's a judgment in my favour. I was completely vindicated. Where do apologies sit in that? Apologies are interesting because it's specifically um, recorded in the defamation legislation that an apology doesn't impact liability at all. So apologies really don't fit into those three main 
<clears throat> motivators because an apology is not going to give you any money. An apology isn't necessarily going to shut down the conversation, although it might if it's made publicly, because what you sometimes see in this context is that there's a, an apology coming back from that one person who might have said something to you. But if they've said something on the front page of a national newspaper, but then they apologise to you privately, that's not really going to be the same thing. Um, vindication is something which the person can usually... Um, only receive from a third party and in this case it would be the court but I think and we'll be talking about this in the when we're talking about it from the other side of the equation I think an apology goes a very long way in these contexts because a defamation claim is inherently an emotional response it's an emotional and economic response but we're talking about when we dumb it down we're talking about hurt feelings um, really that's what we're talking about so um, when someone has been hurt by what someone else has said it goes back to, I mean, you've got kids. I've got kids, Martin. When when kids say things to each other they shouldn't have, what's the first thing you say? Just say sorry, you know? It's, <laughs> it's, not, it's not that complex. Okay, so assume a client comes to you, Hamish, and they've got a, a, a good defamation claim. How do you kickstart the process? Uh, the first step in the process is a formal uh, letter of demand, which was referred to as a concerns notice. And this is something which has a particular legal meaning under the defamation law. Um, it's really just... Um, usually a couple of pages where you set out that um, you're aware of the particular publication, you set out what you think the defamatory imputations are, you outline why you consider that serious harm has or will arise, and then you um, outline the steps that you require them to take to address your concerns. And that can be a number of things. It can be an apology, it can be a public retraction, um, payment of costs, payment of damages, um, or you know, it can be whatever you really need to, to achieve that satisfaction. So that, that letter's sent before any legal proceedings are filed? It um, is, it, yeah. And, and then what happens if there's not a satisfactory response to, to the concerns notice? If there's not a satisfactory response, and I should say, and I think it's an important point, is that sending a concerns notice doesn't, doesn't bind you to commence proceedings. So you can send a concerns notice, not get a satisfactory outcome, from the other side. Um, and at that point, you can either kick on to commence proceedings or you can just leave it at that. So, and I think that's an important point to note because I think when people sometimes um, come and seek the um, assistance of a lawyer in relation to defamation claims, they feel as if, if they send that initial notice and the other person doesn't give them what they want, that they're really committed to then going on and commencing proceedings, but it's not always the case. But um, if you do want to press on with proceedings, you don't receive a satisfactory outcome from a concerns notice, you need to wait 28 days after you've issued the concerns notice. Um, the reason why you have to have uh, that period before you commence proceedings is to allow the other side to make what's um, referred to as a, an offer to make amends, which is really just a counter offer. So they will say, you know, we've received your concerns notice, we accept this, we don't accept that, but here's what we're proposing to do in response. Um, and if you don't accept that offer to make amends, then, it, and it was unreasonable to do so, that can actually form the basis of a defence to defamation if that proceeding um, is commenced. Okay, so um, if a client does want to commence legal proceedings, what, what court do they commence those proceedings in? You can commence them in any court at any level. Um, you can commence them at the lowest courts in the local court, the magistrate's court, um, all the way through up to Supreme Court and even the federal court recently. Um, each court has its own strengths and weaknesses in terms of costs and their ability to deal with these kinds of matters. I think in our experience, um, defamation claims agitated in the lower level courts are very difficult because they've got a high caseload and this is civil claims are difficult in that context. And that's only for where there's relatively small financial claims. I think intermediate courts. So um, talking about Victoria, that would be the County court and in New South Wales, that would be the district court. That is where um, a lot of defamation claims are made. 
um, and then moving up to the Supreme and Federal Court. I think the Federal Court has become quite a popular place to commence defamation proceedings. And a lot of these big cases that we've seen in the media recently have been in the Federal Court. And the reason for that is that in the Federal Court, you don't have to have, um, well, they don't have the capacity to have trials by jury. So in all of the other um, Supreme and Intermediate Courts, you would have a, a, the trial of a defamation claim by a, a mini jury of um, sort of depends on each jurisdiction, but between sort of three and four people in the federal court, they don't have juries. So if you think that you're going to get a better run before a judge alone, federal court's the way. Sure. When clients come and see you about defamation matters, what's the, and I know it's not, it's hard to generalise, but what are the usual outcomes? What, what do you commonly see with defamation matters? We usually see that cooler heads prevail at some point in the process. It's a pretty rare claim. Um, I would say that <laughs> I'd say that fortunately and unfortunately as a litigator, Martin, but um, what we our, our objective here is to get an outcome for the client, not necessarily to run it all the way through to trial. It's a very, very small percentage of defamation claims that run all the way through to trial, and it's an even less, smaller percentage that actually get through to judgment. So um, a large majority of claims would be resolved at that concerns notice stage. Sure. And and but if a matter did get to judgment. What's the range of potential damages? Yeah, so once you've established a cause of action for defamation, and, and I should know that I haven't picked up on any of the defences that are available on, on the other side of the equation at this point, but assuming that you've established your cause of action for defamation um, and there are no defences which have been established by the defendant, um, you don't have to prove loss. So loss is assumed. And you've got three uh, heads of damage that you can be awarded. First is general damages, and that's really just for damage to reputation that's on a scale of between zero to about 400,000 odd which is indexed each year so the uh, most trivial case will be one dollar and the worst case would be 400,000 then you've got um, special damages which are damages for economic harm so this is where you get into the rebel wilson's and the jeffrey rush kinds of claims where celebrities have missed out on opportunities which are worth multi-million dollars they can they can make claims for that on top of that general damages amount and that's uncapped and then you've got a third head which is aggravated damages and that's where the circumstances of the case um, are such that you can really add a, a, a rider essentially to those damages amounts. Thanks, Hamish. What other sorts of claims are often made at the same time that a plaintiff or a claimant raises a defamation issue? There's the usual corporate claim. So in a corporate context, um, you would have things like misleading deceptive conduct or negligent misstatement, those kinds of claims which arise from false statements made in various contexts. Another tort, which is a related one and is sometimes brought in parallel or in substitution for defamation, um, is the tort of injurious falsehood, which is a bit of a bit of a rare bird. People don't necessarily know much about it. Um, and it's it's an analogous claim to, to defamation, but there are some important differences to it. Um, the, the, the big three are the fact that instead of it, you need to prove falsity. So falsity is presumed in defamation. That's why truth is a defense. But you have to prove falsity if you're going to make a claim for injurious falsehood. The second part is that you need to prove malice for injurious falsehood, which is that someone intentionally or recklessly set out to harm you or your business. And the third is that you need to prove actual harm. So if you can tick those three boxes, then you're into the um, into the tort of injurious falsehood, which is a, a, a much, it, it opens up into a whole new range of remedies. So injunctions, for example, can be more readily awarded for injurious falsehood as opposed to defamation where they're very difficult to get. Um, the limitation period for injurious falsehood is six years as opposed to um, defamation where it's only 12 months. So it can really open that up. And then a third point as well is that injurious falsehood can apply to 
um, products as well as businesses and people. Okay, so a client might have a range of potential claims um, arising from the same set of facts. Yeah, certainly the case. And it's frequently the case that we will see someone defame a director of a company. And so therefore, if that company is an excluded corporation, the company will have a claim, the director will have a claim. Um, they might, the company might have a claim for injurious falsehood if there's a claim made about a product. So you can have lots of different claims made in relation to the same, the same matter. Um, on, the, on the defamation side, one point I failed to, to make, which I think is an important one, which just goes to the amount of damages that you can really expect to get um, for, for defamation as opposed to injurious falsehood, which can be a lot more. Um, but there was a, some research undertaken in, in 2018, which looked at some, some cases leading up to that, which found that 50% of damages claims for defamation are actually awarded um, for less than $150,000. So it's quite a small amount of money um, in the usual course if you're claiming as an individual through defamation. It's really in the corporate context, either through defamation with economic harm or going through the tort of injurious falsehood, which opens up these bigger damages amounts. Great. Well, thanks. Hamish, for your insights and time today. Um, thank you also for the listeners who tuned into this um, podcast, which is the first in a series of four podcasts about defamation. Next week, we're going to be looking at defamation from the perspective of a defendant. We'll look at things like how do you respond to a defamation claim? Should you apologise or make an offer to amend? What's your potential liability if you're a publisher? And we hope that you can join us for that episode. If you have any questions about today's podcast, please contact Hamish or myself. You can find our details on the website, paulandwilcox.com.au, or you can contact us through LinkedIn. If you enjoyed today's episode, please rate, review, and follow our podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Uh, please don't defame us anywhere. Um, you can also subscribe to our website to be notified of new episodes. Mm -hmm.